Every year since 1954, CQ Roll Call has done a deep dive on voting in Congress, examining how often representatives and senators vote for or against the president's position, and how often they stick with their party on votes that split a majority of Democrats from a majority of Republicans. We think our analysis for 2019 is particularly interesting and wanted to share our findings with you. CQ Magazine Deputy Editor John Miller is here to talk about his story on votes for and against the president's position. And I'll give my analysis on partisan voting. Meanwhile, we've got CQ Magazine Managing Editor Mike Magner here, who oversees the whole package and is going to keep us honest. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks for having me. And thanks for joining us, Mike. Thank you. Okay, I'll kick it off. Um, I want to make two really important points for our listeners about partisan voting in 2019. These are votes that split a majority of Democrats from a majority of Republicans. Now, first in the Senate. The Senate is voting at an unprecedented rate on judicial and executive branch nominations. It's quite remarkable, actually. 74% of all Senate votes were on nominations, far and away a record. And 82% of votes that split Republicans and Democrats, the party unity votes that we study, were on nominations, also a record by a mile. The Senate took only 28 partisan votes, meanwhile, on legislation. So they are, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, is focusing on nominations, primarily judicial nominations, like no Senate Majority Leader of the past. Second point about the House. There, the average Democratic representative voted with the Democrats, their party, 95% of the time. Now, we've been studying like this since 1956. That is a record number. And it's notable because, if you'll recall, Nancy Pelosi came into office this year with a challenge, uh, or into office last year, with a challenge to her leadership. So some Democrats didn't want her to return as speaker. She took a caucus that is more diverse ideologically with 31 Democrats that were representing Trump districts, districts that Trump won in 2016, and got them to stick together to an unprecedented degree, a record level. So she proved her mettle, and she kept them together. So with that, Sean, as you mentioned, it's kind of become common wisdom that the Senate in the last few years has been transformed into this judge-processing entity at the expense of passing bills. But you found that that Senate had a record-shattering number of what we call party unity votes. How do you explain the change in the way the Senate is voting? Yeah, good question, John. Um, Back in 2013, if you recall, Harry Reid, the Nevada Democrat, was the Senate Majority Leader. And he was frustrated that uh, Republicans were blocking President Barack Obama's picks for judgeships. The reason that they were able to block them when the Democrats held the Senate majority is because at that time it required 60 votes to move forward with a judicial nomination. Any senator could say, you know, I I want a 60-vote count. Uh, Reid decided to go with what was called the nuclear option and change the rules of the Senate with the help of the other Democrats so that a simple majority could confirm judges or executive branch nominees, you know, people for cabinet posts or deputy secretaries. And he spent the next year, 2014, confirming judges. That was where it began. 
So there was a change in 2015 when the Republicans took control of the Senate. And of course, they didn't want to confirm Barack Obama's judicial pick. So there wasn't a lot of voting on judges. And through the, the two years when President Trump was in the Oval Office and Republicans controlled the whole Congress, there was more attention put on policy because the House and Senate could work together. But now we're in a situation again where the Republican control the Senate and they control the White House, but they don't control the House. That's not a very conducive environment to big legislative achievements because the Democrats and Republicans can't work together. But it is an environment where you can push through judges under these new new rules. And what McConnell has done is taken Reed's lead and gone even further. I mean, he is, they confirmed 105 judges in 2019. They brought down the judicial vacancies in the federal courts to 80. They've cut that in half out of about 900 federal judges. So it's been a remarkable shift. More than 100 judges in 2019. Um, That's an amazing number. Can you talk a little about how you characterize them? Are they all conservatives, uh, that sort of thing? And also, do you expect this to continue in 2020? Right. That's another point of, of note for our listeners is that the type of judges has also changed. Um, in the past, when it required 60 votes to put a judge on a court, the parties had to work together and settle on someone who was acceptable to both sides, or the or 60 votes at least. So that required some compromise. Now, it doesn't require any compromise. If you've got the majority, uh, you can confirm a judge as long as your side sticks together, and the Republicans have 53 votes in the Senate. And so that means they can appoint younger people to the courts who will stay in these lifetime appointments longer and more conservative judges. So it's going to change the ideological character of the courts. So staying with the Senate, in your piece, you focused on these two Democratic senators in states where Trump won big. Uh, But one of them, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, is the biggest Trump supporter in the Senate, whereas the other, John Tester of Montana, kind of falls in line with the rest of the liberal wing of the party. Tell us a little bit about these two, and and what do they tell us about where the party is headed in the age of Trump? It's striking. You had Joe Manchin, West Virginia, a very uh, strong Trump state. Um, Joe Manchin voted with his party only half of the time on these party unity votes, and that means he voted to confirm a lot of Trump judges. Uh, John Tester, by by contrast, also in a strong Trump state in Montana, uh, voted with his party the Democrats, 90% of the time. So he was far more likely to oppose Trump's picks for the courts and executive branch jobs. And it it reflects a difference in approach. I mean, Manchin is trying to, I think, strike a balance between the fact that he represents a pretty conservative state and people who really like Donald Trump. Now, Tester, you could say the same. So why isn't he doing have a similar strategy. Well, a lot of Democrats are going his way, voting more with the party, even when they're in moderate districts or moderate states or or conservative states. I think the thinking there is that you got to raise money these days to to win re-election. And uh, progressives across the country like someone who sticks with the party. And so if you're going to have a tough battle ahead, might as well go into it with a big war chest. So now we're going to switch gears to the House. There, Democrats took votes on a wide range of bills um, that they had campaigned on in 2018. Climate change, anti-discrimination measures for LGBTQ, voting rights, good government bill. 
And Speaker Nancy Pelosi was able to hold Democrats together on almost all of these high-profile votes. What was going on there, and what did Democrats tell you about Pelosi's ability to hold the caucus together? I mean, these are issues that once divided Democrats. I mean, you once had a pretty strong uh, group in the Democrats uh, caucus, blue dogs, moderate Democrats who were pro-life on abortion, who favored gun rights, um, who were skeptical of climate change. We've seen an ideological sorting in the country where the parties are more united, especially on those hot-button issues. For example, Stephanie Murphy, co-chairman of the Blue Dog Caucus, the moderate caucus of Democrats. She's from an Orlando, Florida area district. She'll tell you that, you know, just the country has moved in those directions, that if you look at the polling on those issues, that it's moved in a progressive direction, and the Democrats are reflecting that. Were there any rebels in the House that uh, broke with their party? There were a handful. I mean, it was it was strikingly few in a caucus, a uh, Democratic caucus that stuck together 95%. But you had people um, like Ben McAdams, who represents Salt Lake City. He's a freshman. You have Anthony Brindisi, uh, another freshman representing upstate New York, who broke with their caucus on about 15% of those party unity votes. It wasn't like either of them opposed gun control, say, on a big gun control background check bill, but they were willing to vote for a Republican amendment that required greater checks on unauthorized immigrants, for example, or on a climate change bill. They were in favor of the climate change bill, but they were willing to accept an amendment that said, well, before we take steps to combat climate change, we should make it sure it doesn't hurt the U.S. job market. So it was interesting. They weren't really breaking on the big issues, but on some little peripheral amendments and things, they were willing to go with the Republicans. Let's turn to John, who studied the presidential support, uh, uh, voting in support of President Trump's positions. Thanks, Sean. So two things right off the top. In the House, Trump, when he took a position, was a complete failure. Of the 62 votes where Trump took a clear position, he won just five times. And one of those was a failed veto override, and you need two-thirds of the House to override a veto. And those five successes representing just 8% of those votes is an all-time record since we've been keeping score. The next lowest was Obama in 2016. That meant that Democrats opposed Trump to 93% of the time, which is another record. Um, and talking to some experts, they say what happened last year mirrors to a certain extent what happened to President Obama after the 2010 Republican takeover of the House. Um, in, in that next year, in 2011, Obama's overall win percentage in Congress dove 28 points, um, 28 percentage points, and Trump's dove 20 um, this last year. So there is definitely what the experts are saying is, look, these are very similar situations, and this may be what's going on from now on when we have a divided Congress um, with, with that president. On the Senate side, he bumped up his win rate, Trump did, to 75% overall. And as you mentioned, it's mostly because of the successful nominations he got through on simple majority votes. Um, And there were only 29 legislative votes in the Senate in which Trump took a position. Yeah, John, I mean, what's notable, I think, is how few positions Trump is taking on uh, votes in both the House and Senate. Now, we, we categorize all nominations as a presidential position. But on policy votes, he took very few positions in the Senate or the House. And is that affecting the numbers? 
Yes, uh, it is. And um, what's, what's interesting about it is ever since Trump has become president, we sit around and um, we try and figure out and glean his intent on some of these votes. And sometimes it's very hard. Um, we'll look at, for instance, this um, vote on um, LGBTQ um, anti-discrimination policies. The administration never put an official statement out on it. The press secretary never said anything about it. Trump himself did not make any uh, affirmative comment one way or the other. But there were several articles that were put out a couple of days ahead of the vote in the House in which an administration official was quoted anonymously saying the exact same thing, and that is, this ain't it. We don't like this bill. And for us, um, when we looked at it, that was a judgment call. And the judgment call was, based on what we know about his position in the past and what these positions were by the administration, that yes, we were going to make that a presidential support vote. Twitter is another place where we often look um, nowadays. Right, which, that's you know, definitely a first. Right, you know, <laughs> if, if and, and, and that has absolutely been the case where he has come out against bills or for bills on Twitter um, and members of Congress are going to have to, you know, have to look at their phone basically to say, where is the president, uh, you know, on this particular bill? It's sort of reflective, John, I think of the fact that Given the current dynamics in Congress, the split control of the chambers, Trump doesn't see Congress as a place where he can pursue his agenda. And that it's notable that he feels that way because you've got all these Democrats in districts that he won. He might expect that he could persuade at least them to come along his way. Why not? And 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 that's that's the thing. Uh, you know, in these districts, um, he has not been able to convince members to go along. Look at somebody like Tom O'Halloran. He is in a district that uh, for the last uh, two, um, he's a t- two-term congressman, um, took it over from a Republican in 2016. It was one of the few successes. This is in Arizona. This is in Arizona, correct. Um, and he, last year, only voted with the president's position three times. That's it on the uh, U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement um, and a couple of others. And that's that's it. And, you know, these are people who keep saying, we want to work with the president. We want to, you know, uh, have occasion to come together with him. And yet their voting shows either, you know, because either the president doesn't put out a um, firm proposal or whether these members are just feeling comfortable one way or the other voting that way, it, it doesn't happen. John, one of the most interesting findings in the data that we did on vote studies was that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, the Democratic Socialist from New York, um, voted with President Trump 15% of the time, um, ranked her in a tie for a second in the House among Democrats uh, behind Colin Peterson, who's one of the most conservative Democrats in the House. What's going on there? So, yeah, that really surprised us. And uh, we went and looked at the data. Um, out of nine votes total, um, eight of them were where she voted no, and the president also came out against that particular bill. Okay, what were these bills? They were um, reauthorizing the Export-Import Bank, um, an early Democratic version of the defense authorization bill, um, state and local tax, uh, raising the cap on that that had been um, lowered in the 2017 tax bill. Essentially what happened was that you have this situation sometimes in the House where you have a, a coalition of far-right and far-left 
kind of coming together from opposite sides of the issue, you know, where um, in a lot of cases, uh, some might feel it's not going far enough and other might think it's going too far. And and that's what happened in in a couple of these votes. And so it was a bit of an anomaly, you know, and, and, you know, it's sort of the data is what it is. So, John, in the Senate, the rare votes where Republicans broke from President Trump, they were mostly united behind him, were on foreign policy, we noted. And you took a particular look at Todd Young, the Indiana Republican senator. What's interesting about what he did? So this has been something that's been happening since Trump took office. It happened in 2017 with a, a Russian sanctions bill that um, was overwhelmingly voted on in, in Congress and that Trump reluctantly signed. And that pattern has established itself throughout the presidency, um, particularly on matters like Saudi Arabia, um, the war in Yemen, um, troops in Afghanistan and Syria. These were all votes that were taken in 2019 in which Republicans, not a big group, but a, a group of Republicans felt comfortable breaking with the president on it. And, and Todd Young is one of these interesting cases. So he's a senator from Indiana. He is the chairman of the National Republican Senatorial Campaign Committee. And he has you know a very conservative track record. And yet, on these votes, he felt comfortable breaking with him because he's um, also on a foreign relations subcommittee. And the way he approaches these votes, uh, he, he doesn't really talk much, but the way he approaches these votes, he says, is he's um, reflecting his constitutional mandate and the Congress's constitutional mandate on matters of war. Um, and in that regard, he has um, joined with other, I think, kind of ideologically similar Republicans who have experience in the military, younger members, um, who who kind of take a bit of a different tack from some of the other Republicans in in Congress who generally vote with the president. Right. There's, there's two things going on. It's, a, it's on the one hand, Democrats and Republicans saying— Congress really should have more of a say on foreign policy. It shouldn't be only the president getting to pick and choose what gets done. But at the same time, they actually disagree with his policy decisions. They didn't want the United States to pull out of Syria. They don't want us selling arms to the Saudis and getting involved in their war in Yemen. So two things. The interesting thing with with Todd Young, though, is, and, and this is where I find it interesting, is that, for instance, what happened with Matt Gates, a Florida Republican, um, who voted just this year on a, an Iran um, war resolution where we would sort of hamper um, the president's ability to um, conduct a war in Iran. He got a huge blowback for that. He took the vote, and Trump was mad, and there were all these stories about it. And yet, when Todd Young took not exactly the same vote, but a very similar vote on Iran this past um, it was about a week ago, there's been literally nothing. I've seen nothing. There's no Trump anger, even though he came out against the resolution. Um, and to me, that I, I, you know, it's uh, is it just that Trump is distracted? I, I don't know. And Todd Young has been pretty low profile about it. John, on the other side of the aisle in the Senate, uh, there were six Democrats who opposed Trump most often of all, uh, and all of them were one time or another candidates for president. Um, And then one who really stands out was Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who uh, got into a little bit of an argument with uh, Pete Buttigieg in the the, uh, Nevada debate. She had, in past years, been one of those who supported Trump more often than others. What happened in the past year with her? 
So you're right. Of the six top Democrats who opposed Trump most of all, they were all at one point um, candidates for president. Um, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand. And and Amy Klobuchar came in fifth on that list this year. Um, and she opposed him 90% of the time. Now, the two years prior, it was 42 and 43%. And, and, and that's very interesting because she's sort of in this position where uh, she's putting herself as the sort of sensible, centrist, Midwestern alternative to the rest of the um, uh, Democratic field. And um, it seems like just in the last year, you know, that that has changed somewhat. And it's it's an interesting question. We've reached out to her office. She has not responded, um, you know. And well, centrism maybe for Democrats does not equate to any giving any support at all to President Trump. True, but it, in the past, she has shown um, the inclination to to um, support him at least to a certain degree and more so than most others in the Senate. Right, certainly on his nominees. Yeah. He's not getting any help from her on his nominees right. this year. All right, guys, I appreciate you both sitting in and uh, talking to our listeners about our study. And thank you for listening. You can find CQ Magazine's vote studies online later today at CQ.com. And they'll be in CQ Magazine's print edition on Monday. I'm Sean Zeller. The producer of this show was Evan Campbell. CQ on Congress is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note a global technology and media company. We'll see you next week.